Well, good morning again. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Let me just open our time in a word of prayer uh, as we dive into the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for your word uh, that divides and penetrates and instructs. And God, we pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning. And not just here, but uh, in other churches, in our community, and in our nation, and around the world. God, we pray uh, this morning that as your word goes forth, uh, that you would be glorified, and that your body would be edified in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be in John chapter 21. Uh, We have made it to the last chapter of John, believe it or not. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, we can turn there. We are coming off of the resurrection of Christ. And uh, and so this morning, uh, I want to take some time to go through uh, an important uh, chapter that uh, really communicates very kind of simple and yet foundational truths for what life looks like Uh, with the resurrected Christ. And so we want to do that this morning. And in many ways, what I'd like to do is just sort of invite you to breakfast. I don't know if you ever get invited out for a good breakfast, right? And so this morning, I want to invite you out for a good breakfast. I don't know how many of you maybe are bacon and egg people out there. Maybe that's your uh, food of choice. I was talking to Scott, and for some reason he eats sardines for breakfast. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, but I, I tend to be a breakfast cereal person. Do you like breakfast cereals? I've been eating a lot of cereal over the course of my life, and uh, actually, uh, truth be told, I don't really eat a lot of breakfast cereal for breakfast. <laughs> I eat it at a lot of other times. Uh, uh, sometimes it's a snack before I go to bed. Uh, but I like breakfast. So I brought one of mine along. This is uh, a, a cereal that's not necessarily my favorite, uh, but it is a cereal that I really enjoy and have enjoyed for many years. Have you ever had Wheaties before? Right? Not a lot of the, the sugar and the fluff uh, but good cereal, right? If you ever had a box of Wheaties, uh, what, do you know what the tagline for Wheaties is? Breakfast of Champions, right? And they've, they've had a couple. Uh, but I don't know if you've ever noticed where that comes from. But if you've walked down the aisle and you've shopped for Wheaties, no doubt you've seen something like this, right? Where it's got these athletes. This is kind of the current Wheaties box. It's got J.J. Watt and T.J. Watt that are both... Uh, football players on the front of it. And so uh, this is something that they've been doing for a long time. And I don't know if you know too much about the history of Wheaties and kind of how this came about. Uh, They were created in 1921. And in fact, they were kind of innovators in many ways, not just in terms of the cereal, but in terms of the marketing of the cereal. And they began to do some advertising uh, in Minneapolis on the radio Uh, In 1926, they became uh, the first ever pre-recorded commercial jingle. They were kind of the inventors of the commercial jingle, if you can believe that. Uh, But they kind of got themselves into the sports market uh, arena, and they began to advertise 
uh, in sports. And of course, what came out of that is that they really began to promote their product with athletes. And they wanted to sort of make that their target. And that's why they started uh, having some of these depictions of different athletes over the years. And they adopted this tagline, right? Breakfast of champions. And so that's kind of where they got started. And it really has been uh, just a long history now of recognizing great athletes. It it actually began just sort of on uh, the back of the box. And so it wasn't even on the front at the beginning. It started in 1934. Actually, the first one is not this one. The first one uh, was Jack Armstrong, which was just a fictional character. But then later in 1934, they had the first athlete, and it was Lou Gehrig. Uh, And so pay a little homage to the Yankees there. Um, But Lou Gehrig was the first athlete. And then later on in that same year, 1934, they also put on the box, on the back of the box, Eleanor Smith. She was an American aviator. She was, uh, at 16 years old, the youngest test pilot in the world. And so she became the first woman on the box. And there were many others that would follow after that. And then eventually it was moved to the front of the box, which is what we have now, 1956, Bob uh, Richards was a male Olympian. I think it was in pole vaulting and uh, he medaled and he got his face on the very front of the box and he was the first one. And since then, there's been tons of athletes that have been on the front of Wheaties boxes. And you've probably seen this before. Um, there's a few notables, right? We've We've got Walter Payton uh, was on the Wheaties box back in the day. They eventually started putting teams. Uh, the Minnesota Twins were the first championship team that they put on a box, but uh, the Green Bay Packers made it on there. Uh, I don't think the Bears have made it on there as a team. Uh, and, of course, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is, uh, holds the most amount of appearances on a Wheaties box. He's been on a Wheaties box 18 different times. And so um, those are just examples of a few. And uh, it has really kind of permeated certain aspects of our culture. And so uh, it is, uh, there's a display that is in the Olympic and Paralympic Museum uh, because they've recognized a lot of the athletes uh, that have competed in the Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, And as well as it's become a collector's item. Uh, This gentleman on the right, Uh, He uh, has almost 400 different Wheaties boxes. And uh, so he's been collecting them. I am not sure how or where he stores those. (laughs) Um, But it it has become a bit of a phenomenon. And and here's the thing. It works, right? Marketing-wise, it works because people are drawn to this idea of success. And in many ways, athletics, not only, but in many ways, athletics kind of is the epitome of that. It is sort of these achievements that are, um, that are made by these kind of super athletes, if you will. And if you are uh, really at the top of your game, if you have really reached the pinnacle of success and you are a champion, then you might end up on a Wheaties box. And so... Uh, you know, what, what's sort of the point about this? Well, I want us to sort of think about this idea of success. You know, success is not just the accomplishment, is it? When we think about some of these athletes that are on the front of the Wheaties box, it's not just 
that they've achieved something, but there's something that is deeper that is beyond that. There is uh, something about it that it comes down to commitment and devotion. That in order to achieve the level of success, in order for them to really be champions, there's this understanding, right, that they have gone through a certain level of discipline and commitment and hard work to the practice, to the thing that they are pursuing, the goal that they have. In some sense, you might say that they are being obedient to the call that they have in their lives, And so this morning, I want us to think about this because I want to invite you, like I said, to breakfast. But it's a a different type of breakfast. And it's a breakfast that I think offers this idea of spiritual success in our lives. And it's not just having this achievement of something, but it is a commitment and devotion to someone that brings us to a place of spiritual success. The, the main sort of question in all this really derives out of the context of our chapter. John chapter 21, like I said, is coming off of the resurrection of Jesus that is given to us in chapters 19 and 20. And so one of the questions that I want to ask is, what does the resurrection change for you? Does the resurrection change anything for your life? What does it change in terms of redemption and hope? And what does it change in terms of your own life and your own uh, goals and your own pursuits? But there is another aspect to this is what does it change in relationship to how Jesus sees us? And one of the things I think is fascinating here in chapter 21 is that it gives us an opportunity as believers to see Jesus interacting with his disciples, responding to his disciples in light of the resurrection. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that with you. Again, very simple and yet foundational truths from Jesus himself. And so I invite you to breakfast. I invite you to a breakfast for spiritual champions. Uh, In this chapter, there is a very clear testimony that Jesus is alive, right? In fact, at the end of the first section here, which is verse 14, it says that this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so this question permeates the disciples. What's next? What can they expect from him in the future? In the context here of chapter 21, they have encountered the risen Christ already. They've met him in the upper room. But what's next? What is this relationship going to look like? They're going to have to transition from being with Jesus every day and hearing his teaching and getting his wisdom and direction to now living with a resurrected Jesus who is physically no longer going to be present. And so the answer to that comes in these 14 verses where Jesus demonstrates that he is still compassionate, that he is still sympathetic, that he is tender-hearted, that he is loving towards his disciples. Even after his resurrection, even after he is glorified, he still takes a very personal, a very practical interest in meeting their needs. And so that's important to us because it gives us an illustration of the post-resurrected Christ And our need for 
you know, the, the belief in, the adherence to the promises of Jesus to be extended to us as well. In other words, how does Jesus desire to relate to you and I today as the resurrected Christ? What is his preoccupation with us about? And so again, in your Bibles, John chapter 21, let's read together the first five verses. And this is what it says. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And so we're going to stop there for now. But he begins this narrative here and says, after these things, right? This is supplemental. This is the epilogue of the book. And we don't know exactly when. It's sometime between the eighth day and the 40th day, right? In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we know that Jesus uh, was with them for 40 days. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he was with them every single day for 40 days. uh, Because there were only three times that he had appeared to them up to this point. Uh, up to this particular incident. And this incident is happening in Galilee. And so we know that they had to go from Judea to Galilee, and that would be a journey that would take some time. And uh, they had seen him in Judea in the upper room, and now they're in Galilee, and they're, they're waiting for him. And finally, he is going to make an appearance, and he's going to teach him. But it's sometime between this eighth day and this 40th day. And there's a term here that's used twice in verse 1, that this idea of being revealed. We have to understand that this is a supernatural, sudden, this is a startling appearance of Christ out of nowhere. It's the same way that he appeared uh, to those people that were on the road to Emmaus. It's the same way that he appeared to Mary Magdalene and to the others. It's the same way that he appeared to the apostles in the upper room. And so... It is something that was unexpected. And he's now glorified and he instantaneously shows up in his resurrected form. He reveals himself. And so even though he couldn't be seen or even though he could be seen physically, he was not known because his body was different, right? Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him. She thought that he was a gardener. The people on the road to Emmaus, you know, they walked with him and invited him into his home and they didn't know who he was. And Jesus' body was different. It was a glorified body. It was a resurrected body. We don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like, but it was very different to the point that he was unrecognizable. And so he had to show himself. He had to make himself known to them. And so here again, he appears. They don't know who he is uh, because of his glorified form. And so he has to disclose himself. He identifies himself. And he does that on different occasions. Uh, His body is different. And so he reveals himself by the Sea of Galilee. We we know that uh, in Scripture it calls it the Sea of Tiberias. It's also called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's in the region of Galilee. Uh, The Romans had renamed the sea 
uh, after Tiberius Caesar, and they called it the Sea of Tiberius in, uh, as, as far as the Roman name. But this is the Sea of Galilee. And so one of the things that we see right away, right off the bat though, is that this is not just the Sea of Galilee, but it is also a Sea of Disobedience. It's interesting to me that right away they have just seen the resurrected Christ. They've traveled to where they're supposed to go and immediately they fall into disobedience. You know, sometimes I wonder and people will say, you know, like, well, man, if, if Jesus were to just physically manifest himself in front of me, that would make all the difference and it would make things so much easier and it'd be easier to follow him. And yet... We see the pattern and example for the disciples that that was just not the case. That Jesus was right in front of them and gave them clear instruction. And yet they found themselves in a state of disobedience, in a sea of disobedience. We get this from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus had told the disciples to go to Galilee after he appeared to them. Uh, from his resurrection, he said, you need to leave for Galilee, Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, and there you will see me. You go to Galilee, and you're going to see me there. And then in verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So not only were they told to go to Galilee, but they were told to go to a mountain, a specific mountain that Jesus had designated. We don't know exactly what mountain this was. It might have been the mountain that was sort of on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where he gave his sermon on the mount. Uh, but we really don't know. We don't know which mountain it was. But we know that Jesus said, there is a mountain that you're supposed to go to at the Sea of Galilee, and I will meet you there. And the problem is, is that this narrative opens and they are not at the mountain. They're at the lake. And so immediately we're confronted with their disobedience. They are not in the place that they told them to be. They shouldn't have been where they were. You know, I think that that can also be true in our own lives. Right, that we can have these experiences with Christ and these encounters with Christ and God gives us direction, and would you know, in the next moment, we are not where we were told to be. That we have not gone in the direction that we should. In verse 2, it introduces us to the disciples, and I just want to make a quick note here, right? You, you have Simon Peter, you have Thomas, some, some translations say Thomas called Didymus, which means a twin, uh, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee were James and John, and the other two probably most likely uh, would have been Philip and Andrew. This was the original sort of inner circle, if you will. It was the core six, and then you have Thomas. Uh, so, you know, out of the 11, uh, you know, there were seven of them that were on the lake. We don't really know where the other four are. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think that maybe they were in the mountain where they were supposed to be. Uh, but we really don't know where the other four were. Um, but really, those are kind of the non-fishermen. The fishermen uh, were down on the lake. And uh, as many of the disciples probably were fishermen, maybe as many as seven of them were. But it's an interesting group, right? Uh, you have, again, this inner circle. You have the six. But then you have Thomas that's kind of thrown into this group. You know, you ever wonder why Thomas is here? Well, he missed out the first time that Jesus showed up, right? So he's probably thinking, I'm not missing out on anything again. I'm going to hang with Peter and James and John because that seems to be where all the action happens. And so he's probably with them. 
but I think it's also purposeful for another reason. It's interesting that in this list, who are the first two people, disciples, that are identified? It is Simon, who is the denier of Christ, right? And Thomas, who is the doubter of Christ. And so, isn't that neat that God shows his grace grace even in the prominence in the way this list is given to us as readers Uh, you have this element of disobedience that was sitting with a couple of the disciples Peter and Thomas and yet they are part of this group once again that are not where they're supposed to be and so they were up for in the mountain for a little while we don't know how long they were up there and Simon Peter says I'm going fishing, right? Simon just, Simon Peter, he just kind of says what he's thinking and he just does things without thinking too much. And so he says, I'm going fishing. Uh, the, the form of the original language here is that it's a final statement, right? This isn't just us saying, hey, I'm going to go fishing for a couple of hours and I'll be back. This is Simon saying, I don't know what's going on. I'm going back to what I know and I'm going to go fishing because he is a fisherman, He's saying, I'm going back to my old career. I'm going back to my old way of doing things. We know that he was impulsive, right? Peter was impulsive. He, he didn't exactly exercise a lot of patience in his life. Uh, he didn't really demonstrate that. He was a man of action. But he, we also know that he was loaded with self-doubt because of his failures. He had these epic failures in his life. In chapter 20, verse 21, the Lord said to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I am sending you. Sending you to do what? To be preachers, to be fishers of men. God gave them a calling. But Peter has this doubt in his life, right? Sometimes our doubts keep us from being where we're supposed to be. And Peter doesn't know what the future is going to bring. And he doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't been sent yet. And so he doesn't uh, have that power. And they're unsure about what things are going to happen. And so what does Peter do? He proposes that he should go back to his career. He says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I used to do. And so he disobeys. And of course, uh, the other uh, disciples, you know, just kind of follow the leader, right? They're a bunch of lemmings. And so they say, hey, okay, we will go with you and we'll go too. And so they go out of the mountain and they go down into a boat. And, you know, it's not just a boat, it's the boat, right? Peter's boat. And uh, we know that Peter had a boat and uh, he had his own nets. He had all of his fishing tools and his fishing paraphernalia. He's going back to what is familiar to him and he's thinking right that I I don't know about this commission about being a fisher of men I don't really understand what it is that God is calling us to so I'm just going to go back to what I know I'm going to go back to the one thing that I have confidence in right because he's lost a lot of his confidence I'm going to go back to the thing that I know I can catch fish and of course all the other disciples said well we can do that too we're going to go with you And so they go back, and they go to catch some fish, and guess what? (laughs) They caught nothing. The one thing that they had confidence in, the one thing that they were sure of that they were going to go back to, they caught nothing. They came up empty so much for self-confidence. 
Well, what's interesting about this is that if you look back in Luke chapter 5, and if you want to flip over there, you can. I'm just going to sort of summarize. There's a story that happens when these disciples were called that is now being sort of revisited in terms of circumstances. Uh, Three years before, they had been told to drop their nets, uh, to stop fishing for fish, and to start fishing for men. And we know from Luke chapter 5 that there were crowds that were coming to listen to Jesus, and the crowds were pressing up on Jesus, and Jesus was kind of getting back closer and closer to the Sea of Galilee. And so finally he turns and he finds a boat, and he comes to a fisherman and he says, you know, will you take me on your boat a little ways, and this will help for everybody to be able to hear me, and it will sort of keep a little bit of distance between me and the people, and when you know it, It was Simon Peter's boat. And so he goes out, and when he's done speaking to the crowd, uh, Jesus turns to Peter, and he tells him, put out in deep water and let your nets, uh, and let down your nets for a catch. Now, the problem with this is that Peter had come in from fishing all night when it was the right time to fish. He had come in from fishing. He was cleaning his nets. He was wrapping up for the time. And yet Jesus says, you know, why don't we go back out into the water and put down the nets? And of course, he says, you know, hey, master, teacher, uh, you know, let me tell you a little bit about fishing. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. I know when is the right time. I know when the right place is to go. And unfortunately, there's just no fish. But he does it anyway, probably in an attempt to just sort of prove himself and to show that he knows what he's talking about. And so he goes and he does what Jesus asked. And you know the story. They let down their nets and there was a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And so they signaled for other partners to come with their boats, probably other future disciples. And they came and they helped them and they filled the boats so full that they began to sink. Uh, But Simon Peter at this, he fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He knew that he was dealing with the Lord God and he saw his own sinfulness and he had a sinful attitude and he had conveyed that to the Lord. And so in his amazement to him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish that they had taken, we see James and John and Peter and they come and they become Jesus's disciples And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And they brought their boats to land and they left everything and they followed him. So that was the story of how they became disciples. So now fast forward three years later and Peter's in the mountain and he's impatient and he's saying, where's the Lord? And so self-doubt says, I'm going back to fishing. I wonder, have you ever felt like you're in the mountain and you're waiting and you're waiting and it just doesn't seem like things are happening the way that you expected and so you feel this temptation to just wander back to the things that are familiar to go back to the old ways of doing things and this is what was going on with Peter and ultimately six other of the disciples and it was a really amazing thing given that Jesus was alive from the dead. They had seen the resurrected Christ, but they went back to their former way of life. And verse 3 tells us at the end that they caught nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. Uh, We'll get to the next section next time we're in John. But if you flip over real quick to verse 15 of chapter 21, um, we'll, we'll see this next time in more detail. But Jesus says to Simon after this breakfast, do you love me more than these, right? These what? What is he talking about? More than these other people? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, do you love me more than these, these nets, these boats, these fish, all the tools and the paraphernalia that you have? What is about, or this is, this is about who you love. Do you love me more than the trappings that have been in your life? It's a good question for us. Do we love Jesus more than the former things of our lives? Or are we drawn back into them? Are we drawn back to the former things before our walk with Christ? And so Peter goes on and he tells him three times, Lord, I love you, Lord, I love you. And essentially he's trying to convince him. But it's this struggle with disobedience. See, sometimes we can be drawn into the old things of our lives. They can crop back up. They can seem enticing. And so it could be the doubt of our future and the pull of our past that leaves us in a place of disobedience. And so here really is our first principle with regard to disobedience. Spiritual disobedience can sometimes lead to failures. And so here's the picture. If you step away from the calling that God has placed on your life and you choose to go the opposite direction, if the path of self-will and self-effort is what you choose, you may think that you can accomplish a lot, but you might end up in failure. Disobedience often leads to failure. It's just a simple principle. When God calls us and gives us gifts and prepares us and sends us to places For his ministry, for his kingdom, whether it's professionally or whether it's as a lay person, and it fits your gifts and your opportunities, you will fail at what you do if you walk away from those things. And that's exactly what happened here. The Lord does not reward disobedience. And there are many people who are disobedient to the Lord, but from an outward perspective, they seem like they have all of the world's successes. But while that can be one measure, most of the time, failure appears in deeper and more personal ways, doesn't it? Failure shows up in relationships. Failure shows up in purpose. It shows up in value. Some of the most accomplished people in the world are the people that are the most lost, the most unhappy and dissatisfied. The people that seem like they have it all are the people that have nothing internally Many times. Why? Well, I think it's because of the second principle of disobedience. That spiritual disobedience will always lead to a loss of fellowship. It it can lead to, to physical failures. It will certainly lead to spiritual failures in our lives. And it will certainly lead to those areas because it leads to a loss of fellowship. Look at verse 4. It says, the day was breaking now which means that Peter's been trying to prove that he can fish and catch fish all night until daybreak. And Jesus stand on the beach, right? Out of nowhere, he appears. And the disciples don't know that it's Jesus, right? They don't recognize him. And so it's interesting. Jesus says to them, guys, or little children, right? And so 
this, is, this is the text that he gives us. Jesus says to them, uh, you know, have you caught any fish? It, it kind of comes from this word pious. In uh, in really a good translation of this is guys, guys, what are you doing? Right, that's essentially what Jesus is talking about here. It's different than when he says little children in John thirteen. This is different than when he calls them brothers in John chapter twenty. He's saying, guys, come on, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so what happened here is that their disobedience had led to failure, and it's affected the relationship. And now he's talking to them in sort of less endearing terms, right? You, you've probably experienced this if you're a parent. You know, you, you maybe have these pet names for your children, honey and sweetie, right? And then maybe if you're talking to them about something a little more serious, you're using their first name. But what happens when they're disobedient? <laughs> Daniel Paul, right? That's what I would hear, right? It, it becomes more serious when there's this disobedience. And that's what's going on here with Jesus. He's saying, guys, guys, what is going on? Guys, have you caught anything? And so back in 14, he gives them, he, he said a couple of different times in chapter 14, verses 21 and 23, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so this is the relationship, right? Jesus is coming and there's disobedience. And he's saying, come on, wake up. Don't you see that the failures, the discontent, the lack of joy and contentment in your life is because you're not following the things that I have instructed you with. That you are not loving me the way that I love you. That's why he gets to love eventually in the chapter. If you love me, obey me. Don't say that you love me and then don't obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. If you obey me, I will empower you in your successful promises and you will enjoy my presence and my fullness of joy in that relationship. But if you are in a pattern of disobedience, you're going to fail because you're going to lose that communion. Some of us fall into patterns of disobedience. And we continue to go back to the former things. And we continue to strive after the things that are familiar to us for whatever the reasons, for whatever the doubts. And God says, guys, come on. Come back to the instruction that I've given you. There is joy and there's hope in the fulfillment of my promises. And so Jesus says to them, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? You know, I don't know if you agree with this or not. I kind of think that Jesus is just kind of rubbing it in a little bit, right? It's a kind of irritating comment. Of course, they didn't catch anything. But it's probably the best understanding of this is you don't have any fish, do you? It didn't really work out well for you, did it? In fact, he directs their attention to the fact that they have been disobedient. He wants to highlight it in some ways. And by the way, he speaks fairly loudly, right? He's kind of shouting from the shore. But I think that it's good, right? They say, no, no, we didn't catch anything. But isn't it good that the Lord graciously offers us an opportunity to become aware of our failure? Right? To articulate it, to confess it, to acknowledge it. He wants to hear them say, no, we failed. 
And this is where our impatience, our self-doubt, and our disobedience have led us. It's led us to failure. And when we acknowledge it, then God is able to get us back on track, to invite us back into fellowship. And so it's a pretty simple question. Do you have any fish? And I think to each one of us, he might say that if you're walking in disobedience, how's that working out? Is it really achieving the things that you had hoped it would achieve? And the answer is always no. Sometimes God reminds us in our lives that our disobedience, what we are trying to do on our own, is not working so that he can redirect our attention. The reason that God might be bringing attention to the fact that you are failing in your life is so that you will have your focus on the disobedience of your choices so that you can be redirected into fellowship with him. That's a hard message, but it's a true message in our lives. And so this is their situation, failure, right? And they have to admit it. They don't really know who he is. Uh, they, they, you know, he talks to them as if they're just another group. And, you know, I think that life can go that way sometimes. Uh, even today, for you and I, in churches around the world, people have been gifted, they've been called, they've been given spiritual opportunity. And instead of doing it, instead of following obediently what the Lord has given us, people turn away from it and they go back to other things. And the reality is, is that God's not going to bless that. There's going to be a measure of failure and there's going to be a loss of intimacy with Christ. And so as we step into the kingdom and kingdom work and whatever it might involve, he empowers that. He brings about a deeper level of intimacy and fellowship. You might be here today and you're wasting all of your energies on things that pass away, things that are temporary, things that have no eternal use or value. And if that's the case, then it's time to get back involved in the business of fishing for men or whatever God has called you in terms of kingdom work. Maybe you found yourself just too busy to teach a Sunday school class or too busy to be part of church on Sunday morning or too busy to share in other people's lives or too busy to use your spiritual gifts. And when that happens, you're going to find yourself on a path that leads ultimately to failure and losing the joy of intimacy with Christ. And so, that's heavy, but let's look at what Christ offers because there's a second part to the story. The failures are there, but they acknowledge it. And so God uses this and Peter thought that he could do one thing and that was fish and he realizes that he can't and now he's going to kind of get a redirection and so we come to verse 6. We go from self-effort to divine provision. Verse 6 down through 14. Let me read this for us. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fireplace with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net to shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is what I love about the story, is that it changes locations. Sometimes this is what we need. God gives us a change of location for our hearts. And he moves from the sea of disobedience to now the breakfast of obedience. You know, you read the story, right, that they cast their nets And of course, the same thing happens as Luke chapter 5. They are filled to the brim, except now this time the net doesn't break. There's a miracle in that as well. But Jesus is telling them, do this. You know, obey me. Follow what I'm telling you to do. You know, to an outside perspective, we might say, well, that's foolish. You know, somebody's shouting on the shore hundreds of yards away. How would they know? No one would know that. But for some inexplicable reason, namely the authority of Christ, verse 6 says, so they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Again, just like Luke chapter 5. And so against what seemed rational and practical, uh, they're compelled to obey the Lord and there is immediate success. In fact, the success was super abundant. And so this is a principle of success, right? Spiritual obedience can sometimes lead to success. And this is what we'd say, right? Is that sometimes it can bring about physical success in our lives, but it will always bring about spiritual success. It's a simple illustration of the fact that when we obey the Lord, the Lord empowers our success. The Lord blesses the things that we're doing. You know, the Lord said, okay, you know, he, he didn't say, I'm, you know, have, I'm just going to have all the fish jump into the boat, right? They had to do their part. They had to take that step of faith. They had to walk out their obedience. And when we do that, when we walk in obedience, then the Lord is involved, but so are we. And God supplies our needs, and he does it through our faithful work. And they got so many fish, it was shocking and Uh, They, you know, didn't know exactly what to do. And of course, you can imagine what Simon Peter does, right? He just, without thinking, jumps in the water. He puts on his tunic and he jumps in the water and he is going after the Lord. And there's something wonderful, I think, about Peter's eagerness to be near the Lord. You know, it was almost like he was glad to be found out. Uh, He's in the water and he's swimming with his tunic on and he's wading to shore. And, you know, he loved the Lord, right? Peter really loved the Lord. And he knew his own weaknesses. He knew his own frailties. He knew that he couldn't get back to the Lord fast enough. He wanted forgiveness. He wanted restoration. And he gets that in in a really ultimate sense. We see that in the next section here in John 21. And then the others, they come in this boat and they're not too far from the land. They eventually come and they're, you know, they're all of them dragging this full net of fish. And so they're trying to get the boat to shore, dragging these fish. And Peter is long gone. He couldn't care less about what happened uh, when they were being disobedient. And he couldn't care less about anything other than being with the Lord. And listen, that's, that's how repentance and restoration works. Is the minute that we 
turn and we take a step of obedience, then the past is forgiven. And we are no longer living in the sins of the past, in the failures, in the guilt of the past, the shame of the past. But now we're standing before the Lord and his overwhelming glory and presence overshadows the guilt and the shame of our past disobedience. And in this way, he's clinging to the Lord. See, spiritual obedience will always lead to gained fellowship. The others bring the boat in, verse 8, and they get to land, and here it is. There's a charcoal fire, and Jesus made a breakfast. And it's interesting here because this is really a breakfast for champions, right? Jesus makes a breakfast. How did Jesus make breakfast? He said, <laughs> breakfast. And there was breakfast. <laughs> and it was pretty awesome. It was a good breakfast, loaves and fish, just like John chapter 6. And here it is, the answer to the question. What is it going to be, look, what is it going to look like to have a relationship with Jesus post-resurrection for his disciples? Well, here it is. He is going to be there to provide. He's going to be there to meet the needs. Even the simplest day-to-day needs of hunger. He's going to be there to care for them. And that's not going to change. Even after the resurrection. Even after his glorified body. He's going to have the same compassion and care. And make the same provisions for them that they have known him to make. In other words... The time that he was with them every day, providing and leading and guiding and directing, that that was not going to change when he was gone. What that means is that it's not going to change for you and I as well. That the same Jesus that is loving and caring and providing for the disciples is the same Jesus that loves and cares and provides for us. And all we have to do is to take the steps of obedience and to follow his direction and to glean his wisdom from his word. And they get to shore after fishing all night and they've famished. And, and Jesus has this breakfast for them, creating it out of nothing. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught because I know that you're hungry and I'm going to feed you. And, and you know, there is going to be more than what you need. And so we're going to make this a big breakfast of champions and so how does the fellowship of the resurrected Jesus look like what does it look like well it looks like provision right isn't this how God works he supplies in abundance when we are obedient God supplies in abundance and it's awesome here Peter in verse 11 went and drew up the net to the land I think this is probably where he gets the term, the big fisherman. You know, years ago, 1959, there was a movie that came out called The Big Fisherman. And, you know, everybody kind of thinks of Peter as being this big guy. Well, this is probably why, right? Because you have six guys dragging these nets in. In verse 11, it says that Peter went over and he drew the net to the land full of fish, large fish, large fish in the sea. He grabs this net And he pulls it in. And it's fascinating, right? Scripture does this, I think, frequently to let us know that this is reality. This is not something that's mystical. It says that there were specifically 153 fish. You know, each of these fish, probably tilapia, uh, you know, weighed about two pounds, right? And they're looking 
you know, you, you think about this, is like you have like 300 pounds of fish plus wet nets, and he's dragging this to the shore. He's a formidable guy. And so he drags them, and he becomes, he comes to a place where he's in fellowship, and he's participating in the miracle of the Lord. And so they arrive on the beach, the fish have been pulled, and Jesus says, come and have breakfast. You know, it's, there's something just so normal about that. There's something that is so day-to-day about that, right? He doesn't say, come and let me sort of explain the nuances of my resurrected body. He doesn't say, let me tell you how I sort of teleport myself through space. Right? He says, let's have breakfast. It's just something that is normal. And I think it tells us as believers that God wants to be involved in the day-to-day of our lives. And sometimes we're just constantly looking for these like supernatural resolutions. And because they don't happen, it throws us into these places of doubt that causes us to push back into disobedience, into the former things of our lives. But if we trust Christ and walk in obedience, then we can not just have success in a material sense, but we have success in a spiritual sense where we have fellowship with Christ and we gain the blessings of his presence. He's going to be there. He's going to meet our needs. I, I, the last thing that I'll sort of point out about this is not only does he show up in terms of provision, but he also shows up in terms of service. They're sitting, they're eating with him, and he's eating. And, uh, you know, they, they have the fish and they have the bread. And uh, this is kind of amazing. In verse 13, it says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And the fish likewise. Notice here that Jesus is the waiter. That he is serving them. Just like the last supper in the upper room. Jesus is the one that is serving the disciples. He's going to provide everything that they need. And he's going to serve them. Do you believe this? That Jesus is going to provide everything that you need. And he desires to serve you. See, a lot of times we just think about our need to serve Jesus. But isn't this great? Is that the reason that we want to obey is because we love Christ. And we love Christ because he offers us not just redemption, but he offers us provision. And he desires to serve our needs. He desires to supply all that you need. You know, we have plain proof of the risen Christ, but the risen Christ is not some detached heavenly being. The risen Christ can sit down and have breakfast with his disciples, and more importantly, he's not at all of a sudden sort of disinterested in them because he's back in sort of his heavenly mode. That doesn't, you know, and it's not like it doesn't matter anymore. He makes sure that they have breakfast and that he serves it to them. And so when we think about what is the current relationship of the Lord to his people, here it is, verse 14. This is the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. He reveals himself providing and serving. And so what, did, what can we learn? What did they learn? They learned that when we obey, God provides. And when we obey, there is intimate fellowship with him. That's the model here. When they obeyed, they were successful and they communed with Christ in a personal way. The most blessed breakfast I'm sure they could have ever had. 
This was a breakfast of champions, a breakfast that came out of commitment and devotion where we enjoy the fellowship and blessing of Jesus as he provides for us and he serves us. And so the challenge, I think, for all of us is that we can choose to live our lives either way. We can choose to live in disobedience that leads to failure and to loss of fellowship, or we can choose obedience, which will lead to success and intimate fellowship, riches in Christ. Our Lord will meet all of our needs if we are faithful to obey his word, and we will enjoy fellowship with him. See, the challenge for us is, are we going to stay on the mountain and wait obediently on the faithfulness of God? Or are we going to revert back to the Sea of Galilee and enter into a former way of life, a life that is full of disobedience and a loss of reward and blessing and opportunity to serve the resurrected Savior? Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word, and God, we thank you for the truth of it. And God, this, uh, in many ways, can be a challenging text, because it is this conflict of obedience and disobedience. And uh, God, I recognize, even in my own heart, this is a daily challenge. It is a moment-by-moment challenge. Am I going to obey your word, or am I going to disobey your word? God, am I going to engage in all the blessing that you have for my life and trust me, trust you for your provision and for uh, the su- su- supplying all of my needs? Or am I going to try to do it on my own way, on, in my own way and on my own terms? And God, I just pray there, there are maybe some here who, today that are just kind of trying to do it on their own. And, and God, we know in our hearts when we're walking in disobedience that we've chosen the former things of our life. God, we've chosen to do things that we know are not in accordance with your word. And, and we see the failures of it. We feel the discontent, the unsatisfaction that we get out of it. God, we just, God, we want to submit this to you. We want to confess it to you. We want to repent of the the sinful disobedience in our hearts. And God, we want to step into the grace of your breakfast. God, we thank you that you invite us into obedience and into blessing and into fellowship. And so God, we, by faith, we trust you and we receive the good gifts that you've provided for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and